We'll hear argument now on number 98208, uh, Carol Kolstad versus the American Dental Association. Uh, Mr. Schnapper. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The uh, 1991 Civil Rights Act made several fundamental changes in the method of enforcing Title VII and the Americans with Disabilities Act. Section 1981AA authorizes awards of punitive damages if punitive or compensatory damages are sought and either party has a statutory right to a trial by jury. The determination of whether punitive damages should be awarded proceeds in two distinct stages. First, Section 1981A establishes several statutory prerequisites which must be satisfied before a jury or, in the case of a bench trial, a judge is authorized to consider and award punitive damages. Satisfaction of the statutory requirements only permits but does not require an award of such damages. Well, is it your position, and I take it that it is, that every case of intentional discrimination should at least go to the jury on the question of punitives? That that is not our position. Uh, Our position is that uh, there must be proof of either uh, reckless indifference or uh, malice. And there are a number of — Does proof of intentional discrimination suffice for a jury to find punitives? Not necessarily. There are a, a wide variety of circumstances under Title VII as well as the ADEA in, in which uh, one might have intentional discrimination but not reckless disregard um, because, for example — Reckless disregard of what? Of the, of the rights, the federal protected rights of the plaintiff. And where I, do you get that out of the statute? The, that it should be reckless disregard. Of I'm sorry, reckless indifference. I'm, I misspoke. Th- th- that is the statutory standard, reckless indifference. But one ordinarily thinks that intentional is a higher level of, in, of uh, mens rea than recklessness. And so, but in, in this statute, you have to find intentional discrimination to find liability. But there, there could be circumstances, as was true in the Hazen case, in which uh, the, uh, for example, the law was sufficiently unclear as to whether or not a particular act of discrimination, although technically intentional, was nonetheless illegal. Um, the Court noted in Hazen, for example, uh, that there was uh, a BFOQ exception under the ADEA, the same exception. So it's kind of like qualified immunity? And a well, it, it's a little bit analogous to that. I think the standard is not as, as, as stringent as for qualified immunity. Uh, but if, I'm sorry. If you had uh, a situation in which um, uh, uh, the standard that we propose with regard to a reckless indifference is that the defendant either knew or should reasonably have known that what it was doing was probably illegal. Now, there are circumstances involving intentional discrimination where you couldn't say that. Well, do you think well, that just in general that Congress probably intended, as is normally the case, to make it more difficult to get to be entitled to punitive damages than to gain compensatory relief? Um, the the st- Statutory standard uh, for uh, for punitive damages uh, in many Title VII cases uh, will, as a practical matter, be satisfied by proof of intent, but not all. The standard is different, uh, and uh, but I think we we would acknowledge that. Well, you didn't answer my question, though, which is: Do you think Congress intended for it to be more difficult to get punitive damages than to get compensatory damages? I'm sorry to hear you pause. I, I thought from your briefs that you said yes. Well, I, 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 I think the, the textual answer is yes. I'm, I'm reflecting over the legislative history, and it's — I can't — Oh, you think Congress may have made a mistake? 
They, no, no, they no. Ended no up I, that I, way, but they really didn't. I, I mean, no, I, I'm, that, I'm, but. Insofar as the, the intent of Congress is, is to be inferred from the language of the statute, the statute sets a different standard. Well, if Mr. that's Schnapper, a question about, about whether it was debated, I, I think I'd report I it was not. Mr. Schnapper, it, help me on one thing. In order to be uh, found liable for an intentional violation, does the, does the defend, does it have to be shown that the defendant was aware of Title VII, or is it sufficient to show that the defendant discriminated, intentionally discriminated, said, I am going to prefer uh, a woman because she is a woman? It does not require any knowledge of the law. All right. Doesn't the punitive damage standard require knowledge of the law? It's indifference to the defendant's rights, and I presume that means rights under the statute. Yes, it would require either knowledge or, or, uh, as the Court said, I think, in McLaughlin, uh, uh, recklessness in determining w- what the defendant's legal obligations okay. so, were. Okay, so, so, the, so the, 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 the reference of the two standards are different. Uh, with respect to the intentionality that is required for liability, all that has to be shown was that there was an intentional discrimination, period. In order to get punitive damages, there has to be shown that there was either knowledge or indifference to uh, the, the likelihood of a statutory violation. And, and because you have to, in effect, prove this reference to the statute, the reference to the legal source of the rights, that is more difficult, and that's why it makes sense to say that the punitive damage standard requires proof of something more. Isn't that the key to Yes. It? Well, then, if you're correct in that, Mr. Schneider, then it, it bears a remarkable resemblance to qualified immunity. The, 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 the difference, Your Honor, as we uh, formulate the standard, um, is that the knowledge would — is required here is that the action is probably illegal. Under qualified immunity, there would have to be a clearly established right. And you so would that's charge, a, that's a you higher would charge the jury to find whether or not something was probably illegal? If, if in a particular... I, I mean, you, you would have to. If that's the test and it's for the jury to decide, you would have to say, you, the jury, you, would you find this was probably illegal? Your Honor, if, if there was a question as to whether or not the action was probably illegal, our view is that that would be a question the judge would have to decide. It, but, is the oh, but you'd have to charge the jury as to what the defendant knew, whether he thought it was probably illegal. The, the, the defendant's was. knowledge or the defendant's lack of care in ascertaining the law would be yes. jury questions. But the what? question of whether or not yeah. what the, the state of the law, in the fact, jury, was. What about the malice standard? There, there, there are two tests. One is, one is reckless indifference. The other one is malice. Does malice mean certain knowledge that it's illegal? No, I, I had not yet come to that separate clause. Our view is that malice can be satisfied by proof of one of three things. Um, ill will, uh, an intent to injure, or an intent to violate the statute. Those are the, uh, those are the concept of evil motive uh, that are in the, this Court's opinion in Smith versus Wade. You mean usually, I mean, to, my goodness, you mean usually there's, there's no intent to injure? When you, when you discriminate on this basis, I, I, I would think that exists in most of the cases, doesn't it? Um, I, I think a, a desire that the victim be injured is not necessarily present in, in, in a case like this where the defendant has been found to have preferred to hire, uh, to promote Mr. Spanker because he's a man. That doesn't necessarily mean that they wanted uh, the, uh, uh, the plaintiff to, to, to suffer. Mr. Snapper, you gave one such example. You said that the, the compensatory damage is not, the jury doesn't have to find probably, they have to find there is a violation. <coughs> then for punitive, 
awareness of the legal standard. And you gave as an example of intentional discrimination, treat a man differently than a woman, the BFOQ defense. Are there other instances in which there would be intentional discrimination? Therefore, compensatory damages would be a must, not a may. And yet, not reckless indifference to the plaintiff's federally protected right. That's the statutory phrase. Uh, yes, Your Honor. We've set out in a brief some 15 different kinds of circumstances in which that, that might arise simply on the face of the statute. Questions about whether the defendant, for example, under Walters, was covered by the statute. Uh, questions about other circumstances in which, uh, for example, re- religion-conscious decisions are legal under the statute for certain defendants. Um, and there are, in addition to the uh, specific statutory issues that we noted there, uh, there continue to be issues that arise in the lower courts as to whether particular practices which are intentionally discriminatory are nonetheless legal under Title VII. Well, I take what, it what Congress was trying to do was to tell us that there are degrees of culpability insofar as the defendants are concerned. Um, is, it, is it relevant, say, that a corporation or an, a, 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 an association such as you have here, a corporate employer, has a has an admirable uh, employment policy and it, is, it makes it has very very clear guidelines. You have one employer uh, in a management position who departs. Is it relevant uh, to tell the jury that the employer might not be chargeable with those punitive damages if uh, the jury finds uh, certain criteria? Um, yes, but let me let me explain why I say yes, with reference to the two distinct stages of the determination on punitive damages. Um, the circumstances that you describe would not be relevant to the statutory prerequisite, but they would be relevant to the discretion the jury has to exercise in deciding whether to award punitive damages. How does the, ju- how does the jury, how is the jury instructed? Well, at this point in time, with regard to this second phase, uh, the, uh, um, the practice is very quite widely as to whether juries are, in fact, given much guidance as to how to exercise that discretion. Um, but certainly it would be uh, appropriate in the case that you describe to advise the jury that that would be a factor the jury could consider and it would militate against punitive damages. Schnapper, what, about, what about attribution? Uh, normally uh, in, in, in tort law, um, a, a higher, what should I say, um, uh, a higher agency principle is applied for punitive damages than for compensatory damages. So that if, uh, I mean, uh, an agent of the company can render the company liable for compensatory damages, but not for, not for punitive. Uh, is, that the, is, is that also true here? Um, we don't believe so, but I should start by saying that's not an issue in this case. In this case, the culpable officials included the executive director of the defendant, the highest-ranking official they had. Um, well, 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 well it, 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 it's, it's relevant uh, to the extent that uh, whose, whose mental condition you have to look to, uh, Wheat, who's the lower one, or who was the higher one? I forgot his name. A- Allen. Allen. Your, Allen was the highest, and he was the one that, uh, that, that did the, the non-promotion. And if we look only to Allen, we, uh, you, you would instruct the jury differently as to whose mental, uh, uh, whose mental state was relevant. I think if, if one were to look only at agency principles, even, even uh, uh, Wheat would be high enough. But, but if I could respond in, in some more detail to that. Um, Wheat was the head of the Washington office? Yes. 
and Allen was the executive director of the whole operation. That's exactly right. Um, I, I think that uh, uh, mechanically uh, carrying over here the principles of agency law with regard to punitive damages uh, would not be appropriate for, for two distinct reasons. Um, and, and I note, to begin with, that this Court indicated in Farragher and Ellerth that, that these kinds of issues had to be determined both by looking at agency law and by looking at the purposes and principles underlying Title VII. Um, there are two reasons that I, I suggest that, that one couldn't mechanically use agency principles. Um, the first one is that one of the central purposes uh, that prompted Congress to adopt uh, punitive damages was to assure more effective monetary uh, relief to deter and punish uh, uh, discrimination in the cases of sexual harassment. Um, if one were to apply mechanically the provisions of the restatement of, of torts to uh, sexual harassment, it would it would be a rare case, if ever. Well, how do I know that that was the reason? I mean, all I see is the, the text of the statute. And from the text of the statute, is is punitive damages. I would apply normal punitive damages agency principles. And, and to tie into Justice Kennedy's question, I would think that a company who has a policy against this, this, this kind of activity, and if one of its lower employees, even, even an officer such as Wheat, violates that policy, I would think under normal agency principles you would not punish the company. If you, um, wanted to sue, if you wanted to sue Wheat individually, that's a different question. But normally the, the company has to be a bad actor, and here the company has this policy, and it's, uh, it's Wheat who violated it. Uh, let me, uh, let me take another try at answering this. Um, with regard to the first part of your question, how would you know that reading the statute? The statute has statements of, po- of purpose and findings which both refer to the need for additional remedies about sexual harassment. Um, with regard, uh, a bit of an aside, to, to we, it's not uh, under prevailing law, at least in the lower courts, it's not possible to sue individuals for uh, compensatory and punitive damages. It's the employer or nobody. Um, the... Uh, um, in addition to Ephraim, may I just interject this thought? Although references to legislative history won't persuade Justice Scalia, some of the rest of us are interested in what you might say about it. Well, <laughs> in this case, I would hope I could persuade even Justice Scalia, because this is, in fact, in the text of the statute. It's not in Section 1981A. It is in the, in the, in the public law that was adopted by Congress. Um, in, in addition to that, um, the, uh, I note that the, the statute on its face — Appendix A, it's, it's in the prologue of the, of, of the statute. I mean, I don't see it in any of the — in your statutory appendix. I, I believe that's right. It, it, it's, it's been the public law. Uh, I'll be happy to look at the public law. Thank you, Your Honor. I'd like to reserve it. May I ask uh, — now, the position of the, the en banc dissenters here uh, supported the notion that uh, it must be the uh, company or the dental association itself that — acted recklessly or with malice here, was it not? Um, I, it, I mean, that was a position taken, as I've read I, it, by I, the I en banc dissenters. I think that's probably the right correct reading. Our view is that that issue would not go to the statutory prerequisite. It would only go to a guideline for the jury. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Schnapper. Uh, General Waxman, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case presents to the Court in the context of the Disabilities Act in Title VII very much the same questions that this Court considered under the ADEA in TWA versus Thurston and Hazen Paper Company. This is a case of statutory interpretation, and the statute provides explicitly 
that in cases of intentional employment discrimination under the Disabilities Act or Title VII, punitive damages may be awarded. Well, Mr. Uh, General Waxman, that's quite true. Uh, But obviously, looking at the divided opinion of the Court of Appeals, there are several different possible ways of interpreting that. And why isn't one possible canon of construction that punitive damages are not favorites of the law? Uh, this Court has held a couple times that there are constitutional limitations on them. So well, when there is reasonable doubt as to whether they're available or not, the, the Court's answer should be they're not available. Mr. Chief Justice, it is entirely appropriate for this Court and other courts to proceed on the assumption that punitive damages are generally not favored in the law and that, as this Court demonstrated in BMW versus Gore, there are constitutional limitations on the amount of punitive damages that are awarded. But in this case, as under the ADEA that this Court considered in TWA and Hazen, Congress has made that determination, and it has explicitly stated what standard the plaintiff must prove before the jury may consider the independent question of whether punitive damages can be considered. And I think you were quite right, Mr. Chief Justice, I think it was you, to observe that, as as Judge Randolph did in his concurring decision below, that traditionally at law, reckless indifference or reckless disregard is viewed essentially as a lesser-included offense of knowledge. The reason why there isn't a collapse of what was called the two tiers of liability here, as there was, as this Court found there was not under the ADEA, is that the two tests look at two different things. In order to establish liability for intentional violation, you look at the volition of the defendant. That is, did the defendant treat someone differently on the ba- deliberately on the basis of a prohibited characteristic. The further question that the jury has to consider in evaluating whether to exercise its discretionary moral judgment to consider punitive damages is the defendant's consciousness of wrongdoing. Should it be the consciousness of the company itself, or in this case the association, or some lesser employee? Well, clearly the defendant in the case is the employer, and although this Court has never directly confronted the issue, the lower courts are unanimous that individual employees or supervisors may not be sued under Title VII and I think presumably analogously under the Disabilities Act. So in a case, which I I agree with Mr. Schnapper, is not really presented here because the two officials — Well, I'm asking you for the principle. Because well, I want to keep that in mind as we decide this case. And what is your position on that? General? I think our position on it, Justice O'Connor, let me first say that following this Court's uh, decisions in Farragher and Ellerth last spring, there has already developed a split in the circuits between the Fifth and the Eleventh Circuit in cases both coincidentally involving Walmart over whether the paradigm that this Court created in Farragher and Ellerth should be directly applied to punitive damages or whether you should do what the, the — whether you should start from the place this Court began in those cases, which is to say we know we have to look at traditional agency principles and we have to look at the purposes of Title VII. Now, Justice Scalia was quite right that Traditional agency principles apply differently in the case of punitive damages than they do in the case of compensatory damages. In Farragher and Ellerth, this Court 
uh, I would say, expressed considerable doubt over whether somebody who was engaging in an employee or a supervisor engaging in sexual harassment that did not rise to the level of a tangible employment action could ever be said to be acting within the scope of employment. And I think that's correct. But the Court found that a comp- an employer might nonetheless be liable because one could say that with reference to traditional agency principles, the supervisor was aided in the agency relationship. Now, at common law, and this is reflected in Restatement, ni- restatement Second of Torts 909 and the Restatement of Agency 217C, which are identical, an employer is vicariously liable for punitive damages only if the employee acted in a managerial capacity uh, within the scope of employment. Now, the, the EEOC, prior to Farragher and Ellerth, and I don't think this Court's opinion changes it any, has taken the position that if a supervisor vested with the company's authority to hire or fire, fires somebody in an act of intentional discrimination, the company, the jury may consider whether or not punitive damages may be awarded. Right, but, but the EEOC considers something like that. I mean, it's not on the basis of running jury trials, is it? Well, no, but it, it is the, the EEOC, uh, these are the instructions that it requests from the jury, and this, this well, is the well, position. Why, did, why does the EEOC have any business laying down jury instructions? The EEOC, Your Honor, under Title VII, is a, plaintiff, is a plaintiff in very many of these cases. So you're talking about not the EEOC as an administrative body, but when it goes to oh, court. Oh, sh- sure. The EEOC has no authority under the statute to dictate jury instructions. It does have general enforcement and interpretive authority with respect to Title VII. Uh, the, the question was, what position has the United States taken? And the United States is in court most frequently on this in the right. posture of the EEOC as a plaintiff. Well, have I, you answered my question yet? Because I'm not been, sure you have. You're, you're winding up, though. I, 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 <laughs> I, I would inf- our position, Justice O'Connor, is that in cases resulting in tangible employment consequences, as in this case, the EEOC. Our By that you mean not hiring? Not fired. Not fired. Not hired. Demoted. Promoted. The way this court used those terms in Farragher and Ellerth. In those cases, well, that's 90 percent of the cases. But go ahead. In those cases, we believe that the, res- the principle expressed in the restatement that if the employee acted in a managerial capacity and was within the scope of his employment, the company is liable for punitive damages in the jury's discretion. Is that we the have- same as the traditional agency principles for when you subject? Uh, a company to punitive damages? That, that what I've told you. Or is it some variation of that? Well, what I've given, the articulation I've given you is verbatim out of the restatement of torts. We have a, maybe it's an interpretation of that. We've interpreted managerial capacity to include regional supervisors and store managers who have authority to fire where there is a tangible employment action. In the area of sexual harassment, where there may not be a tangible employment relation, consequence, as in the case, that, as this Court considered in Farragher and Ellerth. As a result of Farragher and Ellerth, the EEOC is, in fact, at this point, evaluating its position and trying to come to a conclusion as to the position that it will advocate in those cases, which General, actually have could, almost never arisen. Can I ask you before you sit down, what charge would you request or what charge would you say fits with your interpretation of the law? How should a jury, in this case, for example, 
be charged on the issue of punitive damages? Well, I think that the jury ought to be charged in the language of the statute that Congress set out with, is the jury ought to be told that before you can award punitive damages, you must uh, — compensatory damages — you must find that the defendant intentionally discriminated, that is, treated Suppo- Suppose you have a case in which the employer tells the female employee, um, you're, you're uh, carrying a child, uh, you're going to be a mother soon. We think this uh, position is, is just going to put too much stress on you because women have special bonds with the child. Uh, a, a violation of the law, in, 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 insensitive uh, uh, and, and yet a, a person who acts in good faith. Can the jury consider that and well, say, that, well, this man was uh, wrong under the law, but he acted uh, in really her best, and he wasn't malice and uh, malicious in the usual sense of that term. Could the jury well, if the, if the, consider that if, uh, among if, themselves in their own deliberations? Uh, the answer is certainly yes. Okay, and then, I would say can further you instruct the jury that they could uh, consider that? Well, I, I, with respect to punitive yeah. damages, if you could complete the you, you didn't get to finish no, what I, your instruction would be. So. I think the instruction would be, and all the pattern instructions, not just with respect to this statute, but with respect to liability under the civil rights statutes generally under Smith versus Wade, instruct the jury. In, may I just finish the sentence? Instruct the jury in the language of the statute, which is that you may consider, but are not required to impose punitive damages if you find that. The defendant acted with malice or with reckless indifference to the employee's federally protected rights. Thank you, General Waxman. We'll hear from you, Mr. Fay. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The, the fundamental difference in perspective between the two sides in this case is that the petitioner's focus, exclusive focus on the term reckless indifference, ignores the fundamental starting point, that this is a statute about punitive damages. And when Congress uses the term punitive damages or other terms derived from common law in a statute, those terms, absent a contrary indication by Congress, have the same meaning as they do with the common law. And at common law, there were three hallmarks of punitive damages. First, the focus is on the nature of the conduct, not purely the mental state, as the petitioner says. Secondly, the conduct is outrageous or egregious. And thirdly, the purpose is to punish or, deter, or to deter. Uh, May I just, okay, I'm just not quite sure I followed your argument. The, the common law term that we are comparing this to is punitive damages, or is the common law meaning of the words reckless indifference and malice? It's both, uh, Justice Stevens, because this is a statute that says punitive damages may be awarded under a particular standard. And my point is that if we focus solely on the word reckless or indifference or the two together, we're losing sight of the fact that Congress was imposing punitive damages for a particular action here, and, it, and there is no indication that Congress was meaning anything other than the traditional meaning of punitive damages. So your answer would be different, and, and you would, would you concede that plaintiff is correct if instead of saying punitive damages, it had been called liquidated damages? Uh, and the same thing, jury may award liquidated damages if it finds the defendant acted with reckless indifference to the federally protected rights of the aggrieved individual. That very, very well may be a, a different signal, uh, Your Honor, because, for example, in the cases that were brought up before, the ADEA cases, the reference there, liquidated damages for a willful violation, was to a statute 
that is the Fair Labor Standards Act, whereas the reference here is to punitive damages without embellishment, meaning we look to the common well, I, law. Well, I'm proposing liquidated damages without embellish, embellishment, or say if it had said statutory damages. And, and my answer is uh, that I agree that that may very well have a different meaning because punitive damages has a common law root, whereas liquidated damages does not. How about civil penalties? Uh, civil penalties come in different, uh, different shapes. There's a, a rich body of law about what types of civil penalties there may be, just using the term civil pen- penalties. Uh, Mr. Fay, I'm, I'm sorry. You, you said the, the language is reckless indifference to the federally protected rights. The rest, reckless indifference has a definite frame of reference. It certainly case. does. And that yeah. reference, first of all, is uh, in the common law. And this Court, in, on many occasions, a case in point is uh, Molesoff versus United State, States and Smith versus Wade, which is cited in the legislative history here and from which the words were borrowed to put those, uh, put those words in this statute. Reckless indifference is the equivalent of malice. Uh, it is the equivalent in the sense that, again, we look to the conduct because reckless indifference to federally protected rights means acting or failing to act uh, in putting a person at substantial risk of serious harm. It's the consequences and the conduct that are focused, uh, not but just malice, con- malice is no, conduct. No. Well, when it, again, the statute is framed this way. It says the discriminatory practices are committed with malice or reckless indifference. The reference is always back to the discriminatory practice or the conduct. No, the reference is to the statute, to the to the rights. The statute uses the word rights. It also tells us, uh, Justice Souter, that it is the it is the discriminatory practice that is done with respect to those rights. So we look to both the mental state and the conduct. And the mental state looks to rights, not to the conduct or consciousness of the conduct or even consciousness of the tangible consequences of the conduct. It, it does both, Your Honor. And what, what our point is — Well, at is very least, then, you agree that it does look to consciousness or, or indifference uh, to the existence of the sources of the legal rights. That's correct. Okay. What I'm saying is you can't divorce that from the conduct that's at issue. Otherwise, what happens is you look at the mental state without regard to whether the underlying discriminatory conduct was serious enough to impose punitive damages or even whether the underlying discriminatory conduct was a violation at all. Why is that up to the jury? I mean, it's not as though the seriousness of it will, will, will not come into the case. What we're talking about here is what, uh, what this language permits the fact finder to determine. And it'll usually be a jury, I assume. I mean, what, what is the problem about letting the jury uh, take into account the egregiousness? They should, I suppose they may. They certainly would take it into account, but the, but the test that's advocated, advocated by the petitioner would be to usurp the traditional role of the court in determining whether there is evidence of this higher standard of culpability in the statute to impose punitive damages. The petitioner would say virtually all cases of intentional discrimination go to the jury. What, what's the, isn't that what the statute says? I mean, that, that's the, the, the way I read the statute. And I'd like you to — it's the same as what Justice Souter has been asking, and I think — It is. Stevens, what it says specifically is the first question in these cases is, was there intentional discrimination, say, on the ground of gender? And normally they're defended on the ground that it was a pretext, that it wasn't a pretext. I fired her because she was always late. No, that's a pretext. You fired her because she was a woman. So you have to establish the facts. Once the facts are established, 
And if the plaintiff wins on the facts, that means that the person has intentionally discriminated on the ground of gender. So then there'd be a second question. Did that defendant know that intentional discrimination against a woman is illegal? And if the answer to that question is yes, he did know it's illegal, that's the end of this case. You can assess punitives. Now, there's a third very rare situation where the answer to the second question is no, he didn't know. He thought it was legal. I don't know that there's a human being in the United States who thinks it's legal intentionally to discriminate against women on grounds of race. But if we find that human being, the next question would be, the next question would be, should he have known, not just should he have known, but should he really, really have known? That's reckless disregard. Okay? Now, it seems to me that's what the statute says. And even though it means punitives uh, now could be assessed pretty regularly with intentional discrimination, it might have meant there'd be far fewer cases at the time this was enacted when people didn't know what the law is. But that's what it seems to say. And if that's what it seems to say, what's the answer, what's the argument that we should do something other than what it says? I I think that your second question, uh, Justice Breyer, does not take into account what types of damages these are. These are punitive damages. These are not damages that are assessed simply on a separate inquiry about what someone thinks. They are, they are based on uh, a common law tradition of a more difficult standard of proof, and they are also based on the tying together of the discriminatory practice with the required mental state. Mr. Feidu, I understand that you are Writing, putting your heaviest weight on the label punitive damages. That is, you answered me that if the statute had said liquidated damages or statutory damages, then you would have no problem with Justice Breyer, what he said as the proper. No. Is that right? The second part of my answer to, the, to your previous question, Your Honor, was that at common law, reckless indifference was, as stated in footnote 10 of the Smith versus Wade opinion, the equivalent of malice. So then the label doesn't matter, and you'd say the same thing even if it said liquidated damages or statutory damages and not punitive damages. So it's not... No, I I stand by my previous answer, but that tells us what the statutory reference point is. It is not liquidated damages, as in the ADEA, where the sole reference point... So suppose the label were liquidated damages, then... Is Justice Breyer's description of how the case would unfold correct? It would be very much closer to Justice Breyer's description. Well, you're saying, I guess, then, that there's got to be deliberate indifference with respect to the, uh, to the, to the right as such. But there's got to be some egregiousness in addition to that. Does that — are you saying there's got to be an egregious deliberate indifference? I'm saying that it, it has to be as part of it in this statutory well, framework. Well, if that's the case, and then why doesn't deliberate, egregious deliberate indifference just collapse into malice? Because malice, I suppose, under the statute, the, the paradigm example of malice would, in fact, be consciousness of the legal prohibition uh, and intentional discrimination in the face of that consciousness. That's correct. And I, I don't know quite how I would draw a line between malice in that sense of consciousness and some kind of egregious degree of, of indifference. Well, and I, I, don't know how, I don't know how a jury would ever tell them apart. The, in terms of the classical definitions of malice, which is actual uh, evil motive or intent to injure, and uh, — oh, But you've just given um, — I don't want to put words in your mouth if you don't want to take them, but I thought you would, it had agreed with me that malice here probably means uh, a, uh, a, an, an actual knowledge of the legal prohibition. Oh, uh, 
it, you, you don't it may, yeah. Malice may have uh, uh, an actual intent which is irrespective of the malice is an intent to be to be nasty to hurt. Yes, exactly. You, you, you yeah, don't, right. An actual intent to be nasty or to hurt may may may, may well disprove the uh, the sexual discrimination charge. I mean, it would usually be the defendant's defense. He'd come in and say, "No, I didn't discriminate against this person because she she was a woman. I just didn't like her. I really hated her." And I. And that's How could that be malice? And that's precisely why Justice Scalia. So I think malice may well mean. The, the, malice may well mean actual knowledge that it's against the law, and nothing but that. Well, because you have to read it where malice or deliberate indifference. Deliberate indifference is always a lesser state of whatever malice is. And, or, that, that's true, but the but the reference point in the statute is to the discriminatory practice. So if it's not a discriminatory practice that's committed with malice, that is to discriminate because the applicant was a woman instead of personal animus then it wouldn't be discriminatory to begin with. You have to tie the two together by the structure of the statute. But you don't have to know that it's unlawful to be in violation of the statute. I agree, I agree with that. So actual knowledge of unlawfulness is malice. You agree with that? I, I don't think you need actual knowledge of unlawfulness to get to malice. I think you need to commit the, no, the intentional act, which may or may not relate to a consciousness of what the statute requires, with an evil motive or intent to injure that individual. And whether you even knew anything about the requirements of the act I don't think uh, bears on that aspect. Again, my problem is an, evil, uh, an intention to injure the in individual negates, it seems to me, uh, the, the sex discrimination charge. If it's unrelated to the sex discrimination. Well, but, uh, you know, isn't discriminating against someone because of sex, uh, isn't that an intent, intent to injure them? You're denying them, say, a job promotion, uh, and you're denying them because of, because of their sex. And that is, that is injurious, and in a case in which the conduct is serious enough, then it should go to the jury on the question of punitive damages. But how, you say the conduct is serious enough, but what more do we need? The, the classic example of, of the difference between the two and Congress's intending to have only the more serious cases go to the jury is that this Court in McDonnell Douglas versus Green and follow-up cases has established a paradigm of proof for intentional discrimination in which there may be very little known about what the employer thinks, that pretext alone may suffice uh, by judicial presumptions and inferences uh, to get to the jury on the question of You don't suggest, Mr. Fay, that every time there's an intent to discriminate, there's also the intent to harm the individual. Supposing a police force decides they think in a particular neighborhood they'd like to uh, promote an African-American officer, so white officers didn't get the job. There's no intent to harm the white person. They just made an, perhaps an impermissible dis decision. And that would also be be true in the pretext cases. Sure. Uh, it, it is classified as intentional discrimination, but it certainly does not carry with it any uh, reckless indifference to their rights or malicious Why? Intent. Why not? See, Why the person not? pretext the was a pretext. Well, the pretext was a pretext. There's a finding that because the, the, the person, uh, person on the facts discriminated intentionally. Well, for example, an employer may be misguided in thinking that they need to foster affirmative action when affirmative action might if, result. If, in fact, the employer thinks that if I'm doing this intentionally, I don't know if it's illegal, I agree that then you would have on, I think, what I'm taking is the opposite theory from yours, as I said, that if the employer believes that intentional discrimination is not unlawful, then punitives would not 
be assessable unless he should have known that it was unlawful. I agree with that. So maybe we don't agree. I can ask you one other question, which is why, why if the statute is, I think, is, why should we fight so hard to resist eligibility for punitives in a statute that has two other checks? One is the check that the jury might not assess the punitive, but more importantly is the unusual check that the punitives are uh, rather limited in amount. I think it's like $300,000 or $30,000 or $50,000, depending on the firm. Am I right about that? Uh, That's correct. The total cap is $300,000 for the largest employers. And so, so given the cap that's in the statute, why do we think that Congress would not have wanted them widely accessible? One answer, I think, uh, is that there were, as this Court is aware, many, many compromises in reaching this, this Act the second time around. And the caps and the punitive damages and the, puni- and the compensatory damages at times ran on different tracks. So, in a sense, the question of, of what is the standard for punitive damages was decided apart from the very political compromise as to the caps. And the, the stigma and the seriousness of punitive damages, I would submit, should be decided apart from what the caps are, which might be amended tomorrow. I, I just want to make it clear what you're do, — do you agree that every time the employer knows or should have known that his official or its official action is a violation of the law, and the employer then proceeds to take that action in any event that there is malice or reckless disregard? No. All right. What, what are the instances in which there is no malice or reckless disregard? If uh, the instances are in which there is no risk of serious physical, psychological, or in the rare instance, uh, economic harm to the individual. And that analysis has to be done, in our view, in the first instance by the district judge. It, was that true in this case? It was certainly true in this case. The judge uh, decided that there was no uh, evidence um, to satisfy the statutory standard, and uh, the district court's comments were were based on the fact that the majority, almost all of the evidence in this case, was based on pre-selection and pretext. But wasn't wasn't the woman in her in her own mind uh, in, and in her own psyche injured, disturbed, etc., etc.? Et no, that, she did not claim uh, any type of compensatory damages for pain and suffering or emotional distress and the like. If she uh, had, the result would have been different. Uh, if say, she, you know, I really knew I was discriminated against being a woman, and a woman, and it it it, it uh, uh, hurt me very very badly. It, it upset me, etc., etc. If there had been inter- uh, first of all, that would have qualified for. for compensatory damages under the statute, and that's one of the big changes that was made in this law. Secondly, if the evidence had shown that there was interaction uh, to show that the, the employer was punishing her or treating her poorly because she was having that reaction, that would be the type of case that would go to the jury. Yes, Your Honor. So, so you capture this by instructing the jury in terms of egregious behavior? I don't think you need to capture it by instructing the jury that, because it's up to the judge to make the threshold determination. And then it would go to the jury on instructions well, then, which then, may — Then we capture it by putting the law of this Court that it has to be egregious behavior? Because that's what's required at the common law. And that all comes from the label punitive. Because the common law wasn't no, that way. It, for it's more than from the label punitive, Your Honor, because, uh, for example, 
If Congress wanted to modify the meaning of punitive damages, it could have done that, as, for example, it did with compensatory damages. It said, you get compensatory damages here, but then it says certain things don't count. Why does it say malice or deliberate indifference, then, if it wasn't, I, if it wasn't changing what, what punitive well, damages were at common law? Why didn't you just say the jury may award punitive damages, period? Because it was using as its reference point the case, this Court's decision in Smith v. Wade, in which malice and reckless indifference were defined find as standards on for punitive damages under the common law. And it, it almost word for word carried those uh, words from the opinion into the statute. Uh, but this Court's decision in Smith uh, v. Wade emphasizes that outrageous conduct is required to meet those standards of malice or reckless indifference. And, and the difference between our view and the petitioners is you don't focus simply on the state of mind. You have to focus on the discriminatory conduct, and it has to be serious enough to impose it. Let me just be sure about one thing. Your view is that this statute uh, adopts the same standard that the majority adopted in uh, Smith against Wade? Uh, I, I, yes, I think that its common law roots are the same, Your Honor. Did Smith and, did Smith and Wade refer to indifference to rights? Yes, it says callous indifference to the federally protected rights of others. It's the that, same. Those were right. the very words yeah. from Smith versus Wade that were incorporated here. The, the main difference, of course, is that this was a decision of this court explicating the common law, whereas Congress then embodied that into a statute. And the first question is, when Congress used those words in the statute, did it mean to alter the common law? There's a suggestion in the government's brief and a footnote that it did. There's nothing in the legislative history that shows that Congress intended to alter the common law and incorporating these words. There's no reference as there was, uh, uh, for example, that we were trying to mimic. Let me go one step further with you to be sure. There was a very sharp debate in Smith against Wade as to exactly what the common law did mean. And the majority took one view, and the dissenters very persuasively argued the other view. But your view is that the majority view is the one that we should follow. That's the, that's the rule which explicates the common law and was carried forward. We, we usually do that, don't we? Yeah. Yes, Your Honor. But you also clarify whether at one point you said that malice is a synonym for reckless indifference to the federally protected rights of the aggrieved individual, and another point you seem to suggest that those two terms had discrete meaning. So which is it? Does malice mean something different than reckless indifference to the federally protected rights? I, uh, the, certainly malice implicates the actual intent, and recklessness implicates more than negligence but less than the actual intent in terms of looking at the mental state. What I was referring to was the passage in Smith versus Wade in uh, footnote 10 at 461 U.S. on page 43 and in the text, which says that reckless indifference uh, implicates behavior that is so bad that it becomes the equivalent of malicious behavior. That's what I was referring to in that context. That is in terms but, but let's of take the, these words written into this statute. It says malice, and then it says or, reckless indifference to the federally protected rights. What you read suggests that there's no difference, that reckless indifference, when it's bad enough, becomes malice. But the statute seems to have two discrete categories. One is malice, the other reckless indifference to federally protected rights. And my point is, is that the reckless indifference is not so radically different from the malice standard that it becomes uh, a statutory standard whereby all cases of intentional discrimination would go to the jury. And well, we've already established that there are some cases like good faith but wrong judgment about 
the exceptions under the law, the BFOQ, when you're allowed to make a religious preference? And our position on that, Your Honor, frankly, is that it's better uh, not to establish any type of classes of cases that would be exempt from punitive damages, because as soon as someone says, well, the BFOQ case won't go to the jury, someone else will come back and say, well, that BFOQ really was not invoked in good faith. That was a sham. It was concocted after the fact. And if it's egregious enough, why shouldn't that case go to the, to the jury on punitive damages? So I don't think there should be any. Oh, what's any egregious? And I mean, I, what do you mean by by an, an, an egregious uh, act? This act only covers firing. It doesn't involve murder or torture or anything else. I mean, I can have a really egregious firing. Unless, unless it's the motive, unless it's the motive which, which you assert is, is not the point. If you look at it in terms of the, of the risk of harm that someone is put to, uh, it, it, there can be aggravating circumstances where uh, someone is put into a horrible mental state uh, because of the actions that took place with the firing. Uh, it, like I say, it's rare that it's going to happen in the economic context, but uh, perhaps an example. It's the conduct. It's what the defendant does, not the — I mean, with, punitive damage is not going to turn on whether the plaintiff is thin-skinned, is it? it uh, in re- earlier, I answered a question saying that the interaction between the plaintiff and the defendant might make — might show that the defendant's behavior is more serious. I have it. Firing on Christmas Eve, that would do it, wouldn't it? <laughs> that is really T- — uh, yeah. Timing has been uh, an issue in the case law at, uh, that is cited as one well, why, of the Why isn't intentional, intentional discrimination? You have to assume the facts show it. We intentionally dismiss someone from her, her job on the basis, let's say, of gender, uh, because she's a woman, or of race, and I, uh, the employer does it intentionally for that reason, knowing that it's unlawful under the law of the United States. Why isn't that egregious? It, may, it very well may be. Just in and of itself. Not that. Intentional discrimination on the grounds of race, knowing that that's illegal. No BFOQ things, etc. I mean, that's it. Is, is that, in your opinion, egregious and goes to the jury? It very well could be, because in that case, the, the Court is citing, or Your Honor is citing an example where someone knows that in terms of this statute, which protects against uh, uh, various types of discrimination, that harm is going to occur. But well, you, you, you still, uh, to say it goes to the jury, you still have to resolve the question of whether the intent of the particular supervisor is going to be attributed to the corporation, don't you? Yes, and that, that is uh, in, in one thing I think we all agree here is that that precise issue is not before the Court, but I did want to, uh, to state <clears throat> that, uh, that we and believe that — And it's not that, before the Court. Why? Well, the, the, the question of, of the uh, difference in standards that was referred to by Mr. Snapper and the Solicitor General uh, is not precisely before the court, but we would submit that the higher agency principles under uh, common law would apply to punitive damages. The question law. presented is, in what circumstances may punitive damages be awarded under Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act? If that isn't included in the, in the question presented, I don't know what is. Uh, in, in direct response to the question, the uh, — uh, I don't think the petitioner or the respondent briefed this issue uh, at length, one of the amicus parties did. The Chamber of Commerce, in its brief starting on page 22, did explicate uh, the common law to show that there is there is no vicarious liability for punitive damages at common law. It is different uh, from some of the things that we've been discussing today. In your answer to Justice Breyer's question, yes. he said there's an intentional violation. Why isn't that the end of the case? B- because you said it may very well be. 
But I need to know your description of those class, classifications of cases where it is not so. Uh, I know well, it may one, vary one way I can, me, but I, I want to know when it isn't. Right. Uh, one way to describe the very difference in approach between uh, the petitioner and the respondent here is, is to contrast the EEOC's policy guidance, which is referred to in the government's brief, and some of the examples that the government gives that would get you to the jury on punitive damages. And, for example, they say resentment of federal civil rights laws. Well, that's maybe unfortunate that someone resents the civil rights laws, but that in and of itself should not get you to the jury on punitive damages. It is not tied to discrimination against the individual. Another example that — Where are you reading from? I'm reading from pages 11 and 12 of the government's brief, where it sets forth a list of things that would be examples to go to the jury. And I'm saying that those — those examples that that the government gives — that have only to do with the isolated mental state without reference to the discriminatory conduct in this case are not appropriate for submission to the jury. Sophistication of the employer is another one. That's, a, that's something that should have nothing to do uh, because it doesn't, have, it doesn't describe the seriousness of the discriminatory conduct at issue. The EEOC's policy guidance, also cited uh, in Note 7 of the government's brief on page 11, is much uh, more allegiant to the statutory well, I'm standard. I'm glad we don't carry over the government's resentment of federal civil rights law into the income tax. <laughs> <laughs> May I go back to your answer to Justice Breyer's question for a different purpose? You said that if, if there is, in fact, uh, uh, awareness of the, of the Federal Civil Rights Act and, and a uh, and an intentional discrimination in disregard of, of, of what one knows is a legal duty, that, that may very well be malice, and at least it would go to the jury. Yes. You, you've also said that the, uh, that the indifference standard in this statute is, is virtually identical or tantamount to that kind of malice. So I suppose in any case in which the, the indifference is shown, uh, that would at least get to the jury, too. Is that right? Um, in that instance, we are focusing solely on the mental state, and I think there is a difference. This question, as I understood it, was if somebody knew darn well, well the, that they the, were violating the law. Justice Breyer's question focused only on the mental state. That's right. And, and you said, yes, that would be enough to get to the jury. Because he was posing an example, I thought, Justice Breyer was posing an example, where the employer knew that the, there was a violation of the law. That's right. We get into a, di- a, a different area, a little bit different area, where instead of actual knowledge of an intentional violation, uh, someone is acting recklessly as to, as to whether or not those actions are in violation. Right. But again, uh, I, don't, I don't think you can take any of that into consideration without looking at the statutory framework, which says we're talking about Well, I, I, just, I just want to, 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 to go further in terms of, of your answer to his question. And, and I guess my, my question is, if, if malice uh, — I'm sorry — uh, if, if knowledge, uh, if discrimination with knowledge of the act goes to the jury, and the indifference is, is I guess, virtually tantamount to that, why doesn't every indifference case also go to the jury without anything more? Because both would require serious actions. Thank you, Thank you Mr. Fay. Mr. Schnapper, you have four minutes remaining. I'd like to. Um, respond to a number of the questions that have been asked by the Court uh, by re- uh, returning to the distinction I made at the outset uh, between the statutory prerequisites um, and instructions that might be given to guide the discretion of the jury. Um, uh, Section 1981A sets forth two and only two prerequisites, intent 
first, and second, either reckless indifference or malice. Um, we don't think that the courts are at liberty to add a third prerequisite to that list. The statute says that if those requirements are met, punitive damages may be awarded. Um, now, the, a number of the concerns the Court raised, I think, could properly be contained in guidance that would sh- shape the jury's exercise of its discretion, but that's fundamentally different. To return, for example, to the question put to me by Justice Scalia, uh, Section 909 of the Restatement of Torts contains very specific requirements under agency principles for the imposition of punitive damages. None of them are in the statute. The statute does not say indifference, reckless indifference, intent, and compliance with the principles of the restatement of agency. But in in the Farragher case last year, we certainly imported standards from the restatement that weren't in the statute. Uh, You you weren't dealing with this specific statute, which is Well, we weren't dealing with the same statute. But uh, I I don't see why that bears on the uh, desirability of Valnon. I I mean, this this statute is simply confusing. Uh, No no one can pretend that it's a clear guideline as to where where a court is to go. I think that the text of the statute does does provide some guidance. Well, Um, look look at the way the Court of Appeals split on it. it. It suggests that reasonable people can surely differ as to what it means. I don't want to characterize six members of the D.C. Court of Appeals is unreasonable. But in all fairness, the words reckless indifference could not possibly mean egregious conduct. That's simply not within the range of, of possible meanings of those words. Well, but, I mean, the, the argument made by, by your opponent is not an unreasonable one. It, it comes down to whether punitive damages is a term of art. And the, the, later, uh, limit, the, the, the later specification of malice and reckless indifference is a limitation upon normal punitive damages. Punitive damages may be awarded, that is, damages for egregious conduct, but only if there is malice. Now, that's one way to read it. And the other way to read it is is not as a term of art. And just to say punitive damages, that is, damages that punish the defendant, may be awarded whenever there is malice or reckless indifference. It seems to me both readings are plausible ones. Um, I certainly want want to disagree with you as to whether that's plausible. But, But I think, in all fairness, that Congress has specifically addressed the prerequisites in, in the statute, and it's spelled it's out whether too. they are limitations upon normal punitive damages, or whether they are a redescription of what punitive damages consist of, and they could be either. Uh, either way, I don't think the court is is free to add to them, and I don't think egregious conduct is a possible interpretation of of any provision in the statute. Well, there was one brief, at least, that said inherent in the very word punitive damages is this egregiousness notion. So by using the word punitive, Congress meant egregious. I, I think that that really is a stretch of the language. When Congress says punitive da- if Congress has said you can award punitive damages, it might make sense to look to the common law for standards. But when Congress goes ahead and spells out the standards that it has in mind, I don't think it's appropriate to add to them. When the Court summarized its holding in Smith against Wade, did it use the word egregious? It did not. Suppose, suppose it said compensatory damages may be awarded uh, if there is malice or, or um, uh, reckless indifference. Now, in reading that, wouldn't you say that the damages that can be awarded can be no more than the loss which the plaintiff incurred because the Congress used the word compensatory damages? Wouldn't you read it that way? I, I would agree to that. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Schnapper. The case is submitted.